To begin today's program, four minutes of very rarely heard music. It's intensely dramatic. Maybe it's an introduction to something. But what do you think will follow? There's an air of gathering menace. This is a very, very dramatic story that's about to begin, isn't it?
within it, this contrasting theme, in the major, not the minor, but still it's full of questions that need answering. It's an opera in the making, isn't it? And the composer is Giacomo Puccini, one of the greatest and best loved of Italian operatic composers. But is it the introduction to a tragic scene that we've heard? No, it's Puccini offering up his graduation piece at the Milan Conservatory of Music, where he studied between 1880 and 1883. And we've just been hearing the prelude to what he called Capriccio Sinfonico, played by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Edward Gardner. So at this stage, he seems to be aiming for the concert hall, not the opera house, and symphonic music. Let's go back to what happens next in the piece, and if you know your Puccini opera, you'll recognise this. it's the music that begins his opera La Boheme and we'll be hearing more from that opera later on so the material that plunges us straight into the excitement and the privations of Parisian student life in the naughty 90s began life as something entirely other Capriccio Sinfonico doesn't get many outings these days Puccini has suppressed it possibly because he didn't really want people to cotton on to the fact that bits of it turn up not just in La Boheme but also in his earlier operas Le Villi and Edgar but it's a very very accomplished piece for a student work and it was very well received too one critic wrote in Puccini we have a decisive and rare musical temperament and one which is especially symphonic now hold on a minute symphonic that wasn't really an Italian tradition, symphonic music. You rack your brains a minute and what you come up with. I mean, symphonic music is a sort of Teutonic construct, isn't it? Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schumann and Brahms. And in fact, for the record, this capriccio is roughly contemporary with Brahms's Fourth Symphony. To be fair, this early work isn't trying to be a symphony. He called it a caprice. But he took a lot of trouble, as you've already heard, to immerse himself in the symphonist's craft, shaping themes and ideas to form abstract rather than programmatic arguments in the music. Before we hear the whole piece, let's have a few more things to listen out for. After that slow opening and the bohème theme we heard, he gives us a contrasting, truly Italianate dance tune. It's as earthy as a tarantella.
cautiously battling it out in this piece, we have melancholy and omens versus gaiety, with the Bohème theme acting as a sort of musical mortar. And at the climax of the work, Puccini gives us what sounds like a completely new idea, which is a taster of the sweetness, the gorgeous sweetness of the arias which will one day fill the operas he has yet to write. back and that turns out to be just a revisiting of the earthy dance music. the whole work, Puccini's early Capriccio Sinfonico, one of his very first essays in symphonic argument.
Edward Gardner conducted the BBC Symphony Orchestra in Puccini's youthful Capriccio Sinfonica. And what a wonderful piece it is. I mean, just imagine hearing that for the first time from the youthful Puccini. You would predict great things for him, wouldn't you? But I suppose we have to ask ourselves, why are we devoting so much time in today's programme to what is ultimately, no matter how accomplished, a piece of juvenilia? Well, it's a very good link, isn't it, between two great 19th century musical traditions. Puccini, the opera man, trying his hand at symphonic music. And we really do have to have a little bit of background now because it will help clarify what we're about. When Puccini was a little boy, the Italian musical world was ruled completely by opera. And of course, the king of opera was Verdi. And what did Verdi do in his career? Well, he constantly made innovations with dramatic structure and characters that weren't stereotypical, but he always worked within the great tradition of Italian opera. And then, shock, in 1871, a Wagner opera, Lohengrin, was heard for the first time in Italy. He wasn't an innovator within a tradition. He created his own tradition. He was a revolutionary. And his operas, they weave their actions and everything, the vocal lines around mighty symphonic forces with themes and leitmotifs taking the place of arias and duets. He called this his ideology, music of the future. And for quite a while, it really seemed that the future of opera lay with Wagner's symphonic style. Puccini, as a student, must have been very inspired by this. And he is bound to have felt really excited when he was actually commissioned as a result of the success of the Capriccio to write an Italian symphony. But happily for us, he never quite got around to it and he stuck with his original resolve to become an opera composer. And whatever he took from Wagner in his operas, throughout his life he did it his own way. As an Italian, he identified with the great traditions of his native opera. And of course, what is paramount in Italian opera? It's the voice. He was also determined to make his operas about real people, not about the gods and mythological creatures who act as the mouthpieces for Wagner's rather idiosyncratic worldview. One Italian critic, when he saw a Puccini opera after attending a performance of Goethe Dämmerung, Twilight of the Gods, by Wagner, he spoke of breathing an air more congenial to Italian lungs, of leaving the world of German transcendentalism in order to hear music which expresses sweet sentiments of the soul and which speaks of exquisite melodies and eternal passions of humanity. The opera he was referring to was Puccini's story of student life and loves in contemporary Paris, La Boheme, and in it, Puccini deploys all the techniques of the symphonist to bring an opera to life. This is what we've been leading up to. So let's hear some of Puccini's eternal passions of humanity in the very personable persons of our own Mimi and Rodolfo, Katie van Koten and Peter Orti.
moment in Act One of La Boheme when Rodolfo and Mimi meet for the very first time. He's a struggling poet. He's trying desperately to finish off a bit of hack work before he goes out with his chums for a Christmas Eve knees-up. Mimi is the new upstairs neighbour, and she sews for a living, and she embroiders frills and furbelows for the sort of woman who can afford accessories. She's chronically unwell, and she can hardly climb the steps to her attic which is how she comes to be tapping breathlessly at Rodolfo's door, and, of course, changing his life forever. No gods and monsters here, as in a Wagner opera, just two ordinary young people in Paris. And Puccini makes their first meeting into a real conversation with all the hesitancy of real life. We're going to hear that scene again, but spoken in English. Uh, Katie and Peter will be, of course, Mimi and Rodolfo, and I'm going to read the stage directions that Puccini dots all over the score. Rodolfo sits at his writing desk and tries to write, but very soon he gets bored. He tears up the paper and throws down his pen. Oh, I'm not in the mood. There's a faint tap at his door. Who's there? Excuse me. A woman. I'm so sorry. My light has gone out. Here. Rodolfo opens the door to reveal Mimi, holding a candlestick and her door key. Would you... Come in for a moment. <laughs> There's really no need. Please, come in. <coughs> You're not well. No, it's nothing. You're pale. I'm out of breath. The stairs. Mimi faints. Rodolfo catches her and helps her to a chair. The key and the candlestick fall from her hand. Now what shall I do? Rodolfo gets some water and sprinkles her face. How ill she looks. That's very natural language, isn't it? Nothing declamatory about it. Nobody's striking any attitudes here. So we're immediately engaged, sympathetic, interested in these two and this fateful meeting. But what about the musical language? How does Puccini represent it? One of the things the critics so loved about that capriccio in all the reviews was that what they called the emotional truth of his musical ideas. And the capriccio, of course, has no narrative. It has no program, no story. So perhaps what they were admiring was Puccini's ability to take the abstract and shape it into something that evokes a really emotional response in us, the listeners. And this is how he unlocks the emotional truth in this scene. As I said, Rodolfo has a deadline to meet, but he's a poet. His heart's not really in a piece for a local rag. And this wayward little flute theme that runs through the scene at the start tells us just that. His mind is elsewhere. 
and the cellos gently unwind the theme as he heaves a sigh and chucks his pen away. He's really not interested in the job in hand. Mimi knocks at the door. Clarinets play the opening of the idea that's going to represent Mimi throughout the opera. Puccini develops this theme as she comes into view. But at the point where Mimi coughs and Rodolfo says, You're not well, Puccini introduces tremolando strings. Falling and hinting at the fragility of Mimi's health and her lack of breath. So even a single harmony or an orchestral colour can illuminate something of the emotional drama that's going on on stage. Puccini's attention to detail here is an absolute marvel. Here's another example. Moments later, Mimi faints. And Rodolfo revives her by gently splashing water onto her face. Puccini accompanies this with two solo violins playing pizzicato to depict the splashing water. Ed ora come faccio così. This pointillist scoring is what the best sort of film music can only aspire to. Think of Henry Mancini. The smallest change of momentum is almost imperceptible, redirecting our emotions wherever it's necessary. But if you think about it, if that were all Puccini could do, his opera would be a series of fragments and we'd really get rather irritated. His art lies in binding the story together with these details, so that perhaps without realising it, and certainly without being told in so many words, we know in our hearts that this meeting is a life-changing experience for Rodolfo and Mimi, and also that they're vulnerable in their different ways and there will be no happy ending. Let's go back to the libretto again to cover the bit we just heard sung. Mimi has recovered from her faint, but Rodolfo is still concerned. Are you better now? Yes. It's so cold here. Come and sit by the fire. He helps Mimi to a chair by the stove. Wait. Some wine? Thank you. Here. Just a little. There. Thank you. What a babe. Now, please, relight my candle. I'm much better now. Such a hurry. Yes. Rodolfo relights her candle. Thank you very much. Good evening. Good evening. Mimi leaves and then reappears at the door. Oh, silly me. Where have I put my room key? Don't stand in the door. The wind makes your light flicker. Mimi's candle goes out. Oh, heavens! Will you relight it? Rodolfo makes to relight Mimi's candle, but as he reaches the door, his blows out too. Heavens! Mine's out too. Oh, and where's my key? It's pitch dark. Just my luck. Where is it? I'm so sorry. I'm such an annoying neighbor. Not at all. Oh, but I am. What do you mean? Not at all. Do look. I'm looking. They search the floor in the dark, feeling with their hands. Where is it? Ah. Rodolfo finds the key, but puts it in his pocket. Did you find it? No. I thought... Honestly. 
Keep looking. I'm looking. Guided by Mimi's voice, Rodolfo pretends to search, drawing closer and closer to Mimi. Feeling for the key, his hand meets hers and he holds it. The lost key, the guttering candle, they are both useful pretexts for getting to know each other better. The dialogue isn't meant to be eloquent here because the important thing is what's not being said, which is where the music really has a big part to play. There's a terrific sense of agitation at this moment as Mimi and Rodolfo begin to realize just what's happening to them. And Puccini uses a tentative, rising then falling figure. Those little flutters of the heart come again and again in Rodolfo and Mimi's music. From the moment when Mimi says she's lost her key to when their hands first meet, Puccini has to increase the musical momentum, and he does so very economically, building on material that we've already heard. Mimi takes that little figure bum, 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 and compresses it. Bum, 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 bum. And Rodolfo immediately repeats it a tone lower. So they're already finishing each other's sentences just like an established couple in love. Let's hear Puccini's music for this moment in the drama now. I'm not going to sing anymore. And listen to the way he bathes Mimi in radiant string chords at the point where Rodolfo gives her a glass of wine and notices how pretty she is. Che bella bambina! Sente meglio, sì. qui c'è tanto freddo, segga vicino al fuoco, aspetti un po' di vino. Grazie. Qual è? Così. Grazie. Che bella bambina. Ora permetta che accenda il Thank <laughs> you. 
And this whole enchanted dialogue of discovery is made all the more adorable, it's not too strong a word, by the childlike playfulness of the clarinets. They got louder towards the end of that, but they start almost imperceptibly in the background. And the two clarinets are moving together in the smooth, sensuous thirds. In the Middle Ages, the third, was an erotic and sinful interval. But later on it came to be used to express innocence, and here it's the love that's growing. Now we have to get to grips with the V word, verismo. The Italian word for truth is verità. Verismo means realism, in this case, gritty realism. Verismo was an Italian literary movement of the 19th century, which really is marked mainly by extreme naturalism and miserable pessimism. It was very, very anti-romantic with a capital R, and in operatic terms that meant that operas had to be about real people, red in tooth and claw, and preferably lower class and suffering. It's a bit like 50 years ago in the English theatre we had what everyone called kitchen sink drama. Verismo took its inspiration from France, and La Boheme is based on a French novel, Scenes from Bohemian Life. So to be true to real Verismo, Boheme's cast of characters would have to be a great deal less adorable than they are. Rodolfo and his flatmates would be men behaving badly, or angry young men, rather than the good-humoured and generous souls they actually are. And Mimi, I suppose, would be a sort of trollop with a cough. But Puccini's music makes them all real in operatic terms, verita, while never being afraid to idealize them just enough to make us care about their story. So you get verita, truth, rather than verismo. Lots of critics say Puccini was the king of verismo, and a lot of other critics believe that actually verita was more important to him. I think they were right. His great technical achievement in this opera, especially, is to make the set-piece arias flow seamlessly through the action. And they never delay the story, and they never distract from what's going on. And even Wagner didn't always manage that. Getting back to Wagner for a minute, he was his own librettist. Puccini relied on others. And for La Boheme, Tosca, and Madame Butterfly, he had two. There was Giuseppe Giacosa, who was a successful playwright in the Ibsen mold, so a bit of verismo there, and Luigi Illica, who took Giacosa's prose and turned it into verse suitable for singing. And here are the words of one of the most famous moments in the opera. Peter's going to read them in the original Italian. Che gelida manina, se la lasci riscaldar, cercar che giova, al buio non si trova, ma per fortuna è una notte di luna, E qui la luna l'abbiamo vicina. You can hear the tune, can't you, as those words go past your ears. But he's actually saying something really quite prosaic. How cold your hand is. L let me warm it for you. Why bother searching? We'll never find it in the dark. He's still talking about Mimi's key. But luckily, there's the moon. The moon's our neighbour here. Just wait, signorina, and let me tell you in a word who and what I am. Shall I? And Rodolfo goes on to tell Mimi that he's an aspiring poet and about his dreams and hopes for the future. Buio non si 
the beginning of one of the most popular arias in all opera. And Puccini makes it hesitant, thoughtful. Rodolfo is a considerate man, and he's taking note of Mimi's fragility. The harp emphasizes how cold her hands are. But this isn't just a wash of sentiment. Puccini gives this aria a very tight structure in three distinct parts with a coda. We've heard the first. In the second, Rodolfo tells Mimi a bit more about himself, growing bolder as he continues. Who am I? I'm a poet. I live to write. develops a theme heard right at the beginning of the opera. It's the essence of Rodolfo's character. He's actually talking about the fact that the stove has gone out, but he's always Rodolfo, and we love him right from the beginning. That music is as ardent and youthful as he is, and that final expansive figure captures all his aspirations. I'd like to ask the orchestra's leader, Anna Coleman, to help out here. Anna, could you just play that idea that Peter just sang, leaving off the last note? Just a handful of notes. Take that and kick it off with a seemingly new idea and we get the basis of the music for the third part of Rodolfo's aria. that new idea I mentioned, the one we heard at the start just then, well, even that is a development of music we've actually heard earlier. In the most benevolent way, Puccini's been manipulating us, warming us up, giving us little tasters all the time of what's to come. And that love theme actually first appeared ages ago with the arrival of the landlord, Benoit.
you can see that Puccini is constantly returning to and developing key musical ideas to make his point. Back to the young lovers and to Mimi's story. Rodolfo ends his aria, this is the coda, by saying, well, that's enough about me. Tell me about you. First date talk through the ages, I reckon. It never changes. But how will she respond? Remember, we already feel we know Rodolfo and all his musical themes because he's been on stage since Curtain Up. We've got to find out about Mimi in real time, just as Rodolfo does. Let's take those final notes of Rodolfo's theme. Anna, could you just play that? There's our bold young man, full of hope. Now, you just stretch out one of the intervals a bit and what you get. The augmented fourth, dee da da doo doo, and that open interval gives us the vulnerability of Mimi. They call me Mimi, but my real name's Lucia. My story is brief. I embroidered silk and satin at my home and elsewhere. I'm calm and happy, and I like making lilies and roses. I love all things that have gentle magic, that talk of love, the spring, that talk of dreams and imagination, the things called poetry. Do you understand me? Well, you bet he does. Mimi begins quietly, quite diffidently. It's almost coy, and the music is marked con simplicità, simply. She's very demure, until she speaks of the first kiss of April coming through her attic skylight, and we hear birdsong from the flutes. It's immensely appealing and pathetic, especially as Puccini gives us a sad hint in the way he harmonizes this little bit. Mimi isn't going to live to see another spring.
Now, Rodolfo's aria was in three clearly delineated sections, as befits a young man who's got plans for his future and a direction. Mimi's aria is a little rondo, and it constantly comes back to the same thoughts to symbolize the fact that Mimi doesn't have a future. She doesn't know that. It's only the music that does. And her music throughout the opera has a sort of filigree delicacy that's just as fine as the flowers she embroiders on people's bonnets. She hasn't got any great dreams. She just wants to delight in the simple things of life. Let's listen again to Puccini's careful and subtle orchestration as he turns the music for Mimi this way and that to accommodate every little thing she's saying. I live by myself and eat all alone, she says. I don't often go to church. But she seems to be saying, hang on, don't misunderstand me, I'm, I'm a good girl. I do like to pray. So these are the moments that everyone knows from Bohème. Your tiny hand is frozen, they call me Mimi. I suppose because they're so often taken out of context for greatest hits albums and crossover concerts. But they can survive being taken out of context and turned into bleeding chunks because they are so beautifully crafted, they're so emotionally engaging. When you hear them in context, though, Puccini's mastery of orchestral techniques and his sure sense of drama and just how to pace it become just as important as the tunes we know and love. So, in pursuit of emotional truth, once again, Mimi's aria has no big diva finish, just an abashed apology for being a troublesome neighbour. And then offstage, Rodolfo's impatient friends shout up and interrupt this tender scene. Say, come on, Rodolfo, we're hungry. Have you got a woman up there or something? They bring the lovers and all of us back down to earth for a moment to catch our breath before the famous love duet, which is going to end Act One. The essential ingredients of this duet have already been presented to us gradually without our really noticing as the story unfolds. And just before we hear the duet, there's one more magical little moment to tell you about that demonstrates Puccini's genius. At the very end of the act, the lovers leave the stage to join the other bohemians. Let's just hear what the orchestra plays as they do so, without the voices. As Rodolfo offers Mimi his arm, we hear again the frozen notes of the moment when they first touched hands. But this time, the icy harp is warmed by flute and violins tenderly making a rather sensual point that their evening and their love affair will progress very warmly indeed. With Puccini's music, the symphony's loss was definitely opera's gain.
often do we get to hear that gorgeous music on its own because we're always listening out for the voices it's almost complete without them but i really can't wait i'm sure you can't either to hear katie and peter give us mimi and rodolfo we're going to hear to end this program the whole scene alas i'm afraid tonight we're, we're without rodolfo's offstage companions shonar colin and marcello the bbc symphony orchestra is conducted by edward gardner with katie van coten as mimi and peter orti as rodolfo
Dammi il braccio, mi appiccicchi. 